You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Hi, hi. Okay, we're going to continue our uh, reading through Exodus. And I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 32, beginning at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to run away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger, God. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This is the word of God. Thanks, James. Good morning, everybody. Luke, thanks for sharing. I really appreciate hearing that. Isn't it lovely to hear about what people are up to? And I actually found that photo of the sheep. Um, if we can, no, I'm kidding. I didn't. I was, uh, Caleb was thinking, man, I didn't, whew, didn't check through this. Everyone got pretty nervous there. Oh, it's good to see you all here this morning. Look, um, I, I don't mean to be rude, but... I don't mean to be racist, but I don't mean to be sexist, but 
These are sentences that rarely end well. Well, let's just go ahead and say, never end well. You guys got real nervous, didn't you? <laughs> well, where, where is Dave going with this? <sighs> Trying to make a point. We'll see if it works. Um, these are sentences rarely end well. Let's just go ahead and say they never end well. Just saying the words at the beginning of the sentence don't excuse what comes next, don't you reckon? How often have you heard, with all due respect... And then the next bit has nothing to do with respect. With all due respect, you're an idiot. <laughs> doesn't help, does it? Doesn't soften the blow of being called an idiot. I've often heard this statement. I wonder if you has as well, have as well. I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. What comes next usually isn't so great either. I like to think of God as... Now, there can be so many different variations on this. I like to think of God as a mist. I like to think of God as an amalgamation of all the world's religions. I like to think of God as fill in the blank. The sentence rarely ends well. Human beings aren't great at filling in the blank, creating our own picture of God. Notoriously not good at it. We were on a family holiday some years ago and uh, when our kids were a fair bit younger and they were just getting excited about taking photos. You know, to, I don't know if your kids do that, if you've got young kids, take, take your phone. Before you know it, you, you look through your photos, you've got 46 pictures of their face and you have to delete them all. Um, we were at a family holiday and one of the kids was really eager to take photos and we indulged. We thought, yeah, they can take the family snaps on the holiday and you know holiday ends looking back over the pictures and you can probably figure out that was a terrible mistake the photos were awful right they were terrible they were very young no real concept of what needed to be in the frame right and you know things that you wanted to be in focus were blurry things that weren't important were front and center like is that somebody's knee like, what's going on here? Um, some pictures were of complete randoms. And, of course, there were many, many, many selfies. Many. Um, now, it's just kind of funny, right? And we sort of laughed about it and deleted most of them. It's kind of funny, but it's not funny when it comes to creating our own picture of God. A lot more is at stake than just a good family photo album. Left to our own devices... We don't do such a great job at constructing the divine. Created ones attempting to create the creator. Doesn't work well. Our picture can be blurry. We can put things in the frame shouldn't be there. Leave things out that are of immense importance. And it really matters. Why? It really matters. Because when we do this, when we try and do this, we always fall short. We always fall short of the full picture and reality of God, fall short of his majesty, of his glory and his wonder. I think we're tempted to do this. I think we're often tempted to do this and to a certain extent. And when we do, we don't get a better version of God. We get the opposite. We get far less. This is what we see Israel do today. Here's the link. <laughs> this is what we see Israel do today. The famous golden calf episode that James read for us from Exodus 32. Israel, God's people, they attempt to make God in their own 
image. And when they do, tragedy happens. They cut off relationship with the true and living God. So that's what we're going to explore today. And what we're going to see is not just their rebellion, their sin, okay? We're going to see that, but we're going to see a pattern which is going to be very helpful for us as we explore this episode. We're going to see a pattern, rebellion, mediation, restoration. We're going to see rebellion, which is what was our reading, right? Israel's just boneheaded sin. Then we're going to see Moses step up and mediate. And then we're going to see God restore the relationship. And as we do that, as we explore this pattern, wow, we're going to see God in all his glory in the picture he wants to paint of who he is. And very importantly, as God's people today, this side of the cross, we're going to see how to apply this and how not to apply it. Okay, that's really important. And you're going to have to stick with me till the end to figure that one out. See if you can do it. (laughs) Really important how to apply it and not apply it today. So let's get stuck in. You ready? Let's get stuck in and explore this fascinating, bizarre, confronting episode. Our reading was from chapter 32, but we're going to look at chapters 32, 33, 34 as a whole because it gives us this whole message of of rebellion, mediation, restoration. We're going to look at that today. So firstly, let's have a look at Israel's rebellion. What the heck is going on? Last week, Caleb spoke on God's law, Ten Commandments. The next chapters are about instructions for how Israel is to make the tabernacle, which is like an early temple. What is that? It's where God's going to meet with his people. After the section we're looking at today, it talks about Israel doing just that, building the tabernacle. We're going to have a whole message next week all about the tabernacle. But this episode we're looking at today, three chapters, is right in the middle That's what we're going to explore today. So here we go. Moses, where is he when all of this is happening? Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights speaking with God, getting instructions about how to build this this tabernacle sort of proto-temple where God is going to dwell. And the people grow impatient. The people, Moses has been gone a long time, in their minds anyway, they grow impatient and they approach their their leader in Moses' absence, which is Aaron. Hey, Aaron, this Moses fellow, this Moses guy is taking a long time to get back down the mountain. I mean, is he ever going to come back? We don't know. I tell you what, why don't you make us an idol that we can worship while we wait? It is... A bizarre request, and it really feels like it comes out of nowhere. It is a horrible request. We're meant to feel the pain in our neck from the whiplash here. Where did this come from? You know the story of Exodus, right? Didn't God just bless his people by rescuing them from Pharaoh, from Egypt? He's brought them miraculously out of the Red Sea. He's defeated their enemies. He's provided for them in the wilderness. He's blessed them with their law. He said, I'm going to be with you. You're going to be my people. And they do this. Israel think, oh, Moses has taken a while. God seems far off. We want to worship an idol. What's going on? Some One commentator I read compared this to, to a newly married couple having an affair on their honeymoon. 
which is like a horrible thing to think about. Is that what's going on? I don't know, maybe, but it's certainly this behavior from Israel. It's meant to shock us, okay? We're meant to think, what are these people doing? The presence of God is literally visible for the people. They're down at the bottom of the mountain. All they need to do is look up and see Moses is up there. Cloud and smoke and lightning is surrounding the top. They can see the presence of God. And yet they make this request of Aaron. But thankfully, Aaron rebukes them, tells them where to go, and that's it for the episode today. Unfortunately not. (laughs) Unfortunately not. No, man, Aaron agrees. And it just seems like there's no, no deliberation, no let's think about this. It just seems to happen so suddenly. I mean, maybe he was pressured by these people. When you read the original language, this this group of people that comes to Aaron, that seems like they've got some malice, you know, in them, a mob. And so maybe he's fearful for his own life. I don't know, but it doesn't really just excuse what happens next. Aaron quickly says, hey, that gold jewellery, take it off and give it to me. The gold jewellery that the Egyptians had given them, God made the Egyptians favorably disposed to the Israelites when they were leaving. And so when they said, hey, can can I have that gold necklace? They said, sure. And they plundered the Egyptians because of this. So they take the good gifts from God and they use it for this just horrible means. Aaron fashions a mold and they, they pour the molten gold into it and out comes a golden calf. And here, this is an awful bit. They say, Israel, here's the God that brought you out of Egypt. Let's worship. Let's have a festival to the Lord and celebrate. It's awful, isn't it? Now, why a calf? You might be thinking that. Why this image? It was a common image in ancient culture to represent a God right? Um, it was a young bull and it represented strength. I guess you wanted your God to be strong. And so this was a popular image for gods back then. And obviously in doing this, we know this, right? Israel is breaking the first and second commandments. You shall have no other gods before me except for me and don't make any idols. Now, side point, there is some debate about whether they were creating the image of another God entirely or they were attempting to make an image of the true and living God, Yahweh. But either way, they're breaking the commandments, right? Either way, this is, either way, making an image of Yahweh, he told them not to do it. I wonder if you've thought about why. And this sort of takes us back to our introduction. Why? Why does it matter? I mean, we're trying to worship the true and living God here. Why does it matter? Here's why. Because no image will justly, correctly, fully represent God. That's why. Now think of the young bull. It's strong. Is God strong? Yes. But what does the young, what does the golden calf say about his love? What does it say about his faithfulness, his mercy, his seemingly limitless ability to forgive, his justice? Nothing. This, this golden calf just does a terrible job at representing the true and living God. That's the problem with idols. They they fail to diminish God. They're misleading. They're pathetic in comparison. And they limit the true and living God to what we can think up in our minds. 
In doing this, creating God in their image, Israel, what are they doing? They're cutting off the relationship with the true and living God. They've made a God maybe that's more tangible and maybe a God that they like a bit more, but it's not real. I wonder, um, I wonder if you've seen the movie, uh, a movie called Her. It's uh, starring uh, Joaquin Phoenix. I don't know if I say, said that correctly. Uh, it's a totally bizarre and weird movie. I don't reckon many people would have seen it here. It's pretty weird. I don't know if I recommend it. Uh, it's about a man who falls in love with his digital girlfriend. So you're just going to go out and watch that tonight, I can tell. He falls in love with his AI girlfriend. Picture Suri or Alexa. Um, this girlfriend is not even a physical manifestation. It just ends up being in the ether, right? Falls in love with a digital girlfriend. It's totally ridiculous, a ridiculous concept. But it's interesting how he explores just the limits of AI and human interaction. It's silly to pick apart this relationship because there are some pretty obvious flaws. But let's do it anyway. <laughs> now, the AI partner, picture this, the AI partner would be perfectly suited to you perfectly molded to you in every way it cater to your every need and you might be thinking sounds great sounds fantastic if i could make up a, a partner to order that'd be perfect but you know what it would be the worst thing for you why just for one thing imagine how selfish you'd become imagine Imagine how selfish you'd become because, of course, there would be no call on you to change at all whatsoever, would there? To accommodate for somebody else, to serve the other person. I mean, it's just totally obvious to say, but we are built for human, genuine human connection where we're called to love and serve. Now, when we create a God of our own making, which usually lines up with our life choices or bias, as Israel are doing, we separate ourselves from the true and living God and separate ourselves from having a relationship with him. Tim Keller, the pastor who passed away this year, used to say this a lot, and I loved it. He said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. I think that bites a bit for many of us. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. The temptation is to try to mould God into what we think might be better or more suitable or more tolerable, or less offensive, less exclusive. That is the air we breathe right now. Our own attempts to try and manage God, mould God into our image, of course, fall pathetically short. We think we maybe come up with a better version, but of course, we shortchange ourselves and God in the process. This is what Israel do. And man, things go really wrong here. What happens next? Well, remember, while all this is happening, where's Moses? He's up on the mountain with God. So he's unaware of what's happening. But God knows, and he tells Moses what's going on right now. He tells him what's going on right now below and tells him how God he himself wants to respond. He invites Moses into his anger and his pain. And I tell you what, this episode is confronting. 
There's a lot going on. We're not going to have time to dive into every aspect of it. It's confusing. It's encouraging. And it's challenging. Bizarre, some of it. God said to, says to Moses, stand aside. I want to wipe these people out. God's anger burns against these people. Their rebellion, their idolatry, it is offensive to God. We are supposed to see that. It's no small thing. Moses, step aside. I want to destroy them. I want to start over with you. But I want to destroy these people. God is angry. But here's something to remember. God, God's anger. We're going to deal with this topic today, okay? It's helpful to remember God is not having a tantrum. God is angry, but he's not having a tantrum. His anger might be hard for us to understand. It's, it's good. It's just anger. This is justice. We'll come back to that. And thankfully, this is not where the story ends. It'd be a very sad story, wouldn't it, if this was it? What happens next? Fascinating scene. Moses steps in. Moses intercedes for the people. We've seen the rebellion of the people. Now we're looking at mediation. What do we mean? Moses steps in between God and the people. He mediates for them by appealing to God's character. And his promises. He says, you made these promises to Abraham. You wiped these people out. What happens to the promises? It's funny. Bringing this back to God like he doesn't know. It's a great back and forth. And he says, what about your reputation? Don't you care about that? You've, everyone's heard of how you've rescued us from Egypt. You bring us here in the wilderness and, and wipe us out. What will people think of you? Amazing thing to say to God. Moses intercedes. Can I take you back a few weeks, more than a few weeks, to pretty almost the beginning of Exodus chapter 3? Remember when Moses first encountered God? Take your mind back there, Exodus 3. Do you remember? Moses had a back and forth with God then. Do you remember? He argued with God. Do you remember what about? He said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and represent the people. And what did he say? Sure thing, God. Was it five times? Five times he said, no, I don't want to go. Please, please send somebody else. Please don't send. There are better people, better qualified people. What Moses was really saying was, I don't want to risk it all for these people. I don't want to stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and say, hey, these people, you're treating them bad, let them go. What about now? What does he do now? Moses, so different. He puts other people's interests first. Now he argues with God on behalf of the people. He steps in. How far has Moses come? Moses intercedes for the people and God relents. Did you catch that? God relents. He says, okay. He does bring punishment, we'll look at that, on the people. But he doesn't wipe them out, which is what he says he wants to do. How do we deal with this? Are you, are you scratching your head a little bit too? Does Moses change God's mind? 
How are we supposed to take this? Does Moses change God's mind? It, it seems so on plain reading. What does this teach us then? What, what can we conclude from this? We might be tempted to conclude, oh, if God can be persuaded to act in a way he's decided against, how can he be sovereign? Or, you know, well, like that, maybe he's, he's powerful but not really all-knowing or in control on the one hand. Or, on the other hand, we can, we can say, no, 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 we can't, this isn't a genuine, we can't take it on plain reading. God's just acting. He's just play-acting. He's just sort of pretending. He's acting in a certain way, but, but not really. Some conclude this. Oh, no, no, we know God is immovable, so therefore, right, you see the thinking? How we, what are we to make of this? How do we tackle this? Let's try and do it. Firstly, the focus here is on Moses, right? His role as mediator, as intercessor. The focus isn't and is never on God's inner psyche, okay? God, listen to this. God deals with us, interacts with us in ways we can comprehend. Remember that in thinking about this issue. God deals with us, interacts with us in ways we can comprehend. God is angry, okay? Justly so. And his interaction with Moses is genuine. He is interacting with Moses in a way he can understand, not as a block of wood. Yet I, I believe firmly we can still conclude God is in control. He, God condescends to our way of doing things. Now, let me try and explain this. As an adult, most of us are adults in the room here, as an adult, we have a choice with how we interact with little people, don't we? With small kids, small children. You know, imagine a little child, you know, two years old, coming, coming and, you know, wanting to talk to us or whatever. We have a choice with how we interact with them. We can continue standing at our full height, remaining at least a few times taller than them, so in order to interact with us, they have to bend their neck like this. We can try and interact with them like we would be interacted with as adults. So we can try and engage them and talk to them about house prices, about the economy, about how terrible the wallabies are playing at the moment and things like that. How do you think that will go? Or approaching a small child, we can kneel down. We can get to their level, get eye to eye, and seek to engage them in a way they understand. What is that? Entering into their world. How was daycare, buddy? Hey, what are you wearing there? Hey, you know, whatever it is, right? Entering their world. Imagine a brilliant professor of physics coming over to your place. Imagine that you've got a two-year-old kid, and they talk with you for a bit, and then they get down to your kid's level and start playing with your kid with toy cars. And they start explaining to them the basics of motion to your kid while playing with a toy car. Wouldn't that be cool? Does this diminish the professor's brilliance? Would you conclude, oh, well, their knowledge is limited to what they're telling the child? Of course not. You'd, you'd admire them more, wouldn't you? for condescending to their level. This is the beautiful truth of the gospel. 
God condescends in a positive way. Condescend, well, for us, not for him, condescends to us. Now, if that doesn't floor you, I haven't explained it well enough, maybe we haven't thought about it enough, think about it for a moment. Think about the immense kindness it shows us about who God is. And we see it in Exodus. God dealing with us as humans. And of course, don't we see it most profoundly in Jesus Christ? Right? Relating to us as humans as human, the great, mysterious, incomprehensible God becomes comprehensible, finite, knowable, touchable if you were there. Jesus. He doesn't become a spirit, a ghost thing. No, a person, a man born of a woman lives our life. God becomes much more understandable in Jesus. I hear people, it's a gift. I hear people often say, I wish I knew what God was like more. Look to Jesus, the exact representation of his being. So Moses comes down the mountain. He sees what God told him was happening. It's not a good scene. Moses is upset. He has stone tablets that God has written the law on with his own hand. Amazing. And he smashes them in anger when he sees the people worshipping the golden calf. Serious moment. And he enacts judgment. The people are brought to their senses. He destroys the golden calf, rounds up those who remain faithful, and brings judgment upon, maybe we think, the ringleaders. 3,000 people lose their lives like that. It's a confronting scene. But even after this, things aren't right. Stay with me. Even after this, things aren't right. Yes, God relents. I won't wipe the people out. But even after this judgment, things aren't right because what Israel have done is really serious. Israel have broken the covenant, their promise with God, and their relationship with him is in trouble. Now, this is sad. You feel it? It's sad. They were doing so well. What happened? Couldn't they obey God for 10 minutes? We're meant to feel this. We're meant to feel this because what we're witnessing, we can relate to, if we're honest. This constant, ongoing problem human beings have with sin, with the propensity to stuff things up. We're confronted maybe with with the worst of ourselves here, the faithlessness of humanity. Not us all the time, of course not, but certainly just what we're capable of. It's not a pretty sight. In the story of Exodus, Israel is saved from evil, from Pharaoh and Egypt, really the, the personification of evil. And they're saved. And now they, they enter the desert and guess what? There's still a problem. The problem isn't with Pharaoh and Egypt anymore. They're out of the picture. The problem's way closer to home, which makes us uncomfortable. Sin, rebellion, it dwells in their hearts. And they now themselves have become the reason the barrier remains between God and humanity. So what are they going to do? What is anyone going to do? What can they do? What's the solution? Well, Moses tries to put things right. 
He says, you know what, maybe there's something I can do. He used this word, he uses this word, atone. Maybe I can atone for this. Do something about the sin and guilt and, and put the relationship right. So Moses intercedes again. He, he goes to, to God in his presence and he asks God to forgive the people. And he says, but if you can't, God, pretty full-on thing to say, he says, if, if you can't, take my life instead. He senses something big needs to occur. Maybe Moses giving his life will be it. Again, Moses is, is seeking to mediate, but God doesn't take him up on the offer. God refuses. Because the covenant is broken then, God gives the people a consequence. You are to leave this place, but I won't go with you. Which is pretty serious. If we think about it, this was the entire reason for the Exodus. God rescues Israel from Egypt. Why? To be their people. For, for him to be their God, them, them to be his people. Now he's saying, I want you to leave this mountain. Yeah, you can go to the land, but I'm not going to go with you. And the people respond accordingly. They mourn. They're like, oh, this is the worst. We don't want to go without you. This is horrible. They mourn at hearing this. And Moses again intercedes. You get into seeds. Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. What is the land without you? And again, God graciously relents and accepts Moses' plea. We've seen rebellion. We've seen mediation. Now we're going to focus on restoration quickly before we close. God again graciously relents and he says, okay, I will go with you. And what follows is a confusing and wonderful interaction between God and Moses. We don't have time to fully explore it, but what we witness is the restoration of the relationship between God and his people. Moses, maybe he seems to be seeking a sign that, I want a sign that you really will go with us. After God says he will, he says, Lord, show me your glory. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Read, read this passage this week. It's amazing. Lord, show me your glory. And God agrees in a, in a wonderful scene, bizarre and wonderful scene. He reveals himself to Moses. And as he does, more of his character is revealed. He speaks of what he is like. And he says this, The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So where to for us today after witnessing all of this? This is what I want to finish on here. The main point and focus of this story is not the sin and rebellion of the people. Might be tempting to conclude that, but it's not. It is God's immense capacity to forgive. This is what should be blowing our minds about God today, right? That God is a God of forgiveness and restoration. And praise God, listen up, praise God, we should not, we must not 
directly apply this passage to ourselves today. What do I mean by that? The good news of the gospel, of viewing this story this side of the resurrection, the cross and resurrection, is Exodus 32 to 34 does not apply to us today. A huge tension in the Bible, which God mentions as he speaks about his character, is is set before us today, right? He says, I am abounding in love and faithfulness, willing to forgive all kinds of rebellion and sin, but I also will not leave the guilty, evil, unpunished. How the heck can he do that? That is really the tension of of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards. How is this going to work? God has committed himself to a pretty ordinary bunch of people, Israel and you and me. How can the tension carry on? The truth is it can't. It can't. And you and I, we can't. Israel, they can't hold up any end of the agreement. God's going to have to do it himself. See where we're going with this? We need a mediator like Moses. Moses tried to step in for the people. God wouldn't accept his sacrifice, if you will. We need a mediator like Moses, but one much more powerful. And we get it in Jesus Christ, who stepped in as the perfect mediator, who absorbed God's righteous anger, his perfect and right reaction to rebellion. Christ steps in on our behalf. That is the good news of the gospel. I've shared this story um, before, but it's worth sharing again, trying to articulate this idea of rebellion, of mediation, and of restoration. So if, if you've heard it before, forgive me. Five years in, I'm running out of stories, so too, too bad. Um, I went to school um, in the city at the cathedral school, and um, i I sang in the choir there, the cathedral choir, for a few years, which I absolutely loved. It was, a, it was a full-on commitment, though. You're in there pretty much every day singing at services, and you're, you're in the, the cathedral, the church, a lot. And so we got to know the staff very well. And um, the dean there at the time, kind of like the senior pastor, was a, a great man. Everyone really loved him, and we got on, got on really well. I think he was a bit of a rebel when he was young, like I was, and so he, you know, sympathized with me and we got on really well. Um, when I left the choir halfway through high school, he said, hey, don't, don't be a stranger. Come by any time for a milkshake. And I wish I'd taken him up more on that offer. But anyway, a, a couple of years later, one particular day at school, I got into real trouble. I don't exactly remember what it is. That's not a lie. I don't remember what exactly what it was, but it was serious. Serious enough for me to be having a meeting with the headmaster at the end of the day. Oh, well. So I was walking around the city, which we were, you were allowed to do at lunchtime on that day, and as it happened, I bumped into the dean. I hadn't seen him in a while, and he said, hey, nice to see you. You got time for a milkshake? What a great guy. I'm sure he was busy. I said, yeah, sure, why not? So we had a milkshake. He could tell something was on my mind and asked me, are you doing okay? And I just share with him, honestly, oh, in a bit of trouble, seeing the headmaster, you know, this afternoon and shared about it. I, I think I can't really remember. Anyway, we, we finished up our milkshakes. I went back to school. A few periods later, I went to, to see the headmaster, the dreaded meeting. And I was dreading it, of course, dreading it. 
And to my immense surprise, the punishment I thought surely was coming didn't. I, I got a talking to, um, but I didn't receive the punishment I really thought was coming. And I'll never forget, at the end of the meeting, the headmaster said, David, you have friends in high places. <laughs> now get out. <laughs> of course, I later found out that the dean had gone to see the headmaster uh, on my behalf and advocated for me. He had mediated for me. Friends, do you know you have a friend in a very high place? Do you know that? Never again, as God's people, do we have to worry about God's good and righteous anger and judgment coming down on us. We don't. Because of Jesus Christ. We must view this story in light of the cross and resurrection, in light of the empty tomb. We should not read this story and come away with, God is angry at you. God is angry at sin. So get rid of the golden calves in your lives. If you don't, God's going to catch you out in your sin. No, friends, we do not apply this passage like this. Because Jesus Christ, the great mediator, did what Moses could not, what you and I could not. He stepped in to be the answer to the greatest tension. He stepped in to satisfy that tension, to satisfy God's justice so you and I can be restored. Friends, is that not the best news ever? Praise Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are a God of love, faithfulness, mercy, and forgiveness. And we also thank you that you are a just and righteous God that we can trust you to deal with evil and sin in a right way. But we admit that we are stuck because there is evil and sin in our hearts. And so we thank you for Christ. We thank you for Jesus who stepped in where we could not. We thank you that we are now objects of, of love and joy. Thank you that we can have a right picture of you that is of a father who loves his children and wants to embrace us as restored children. We give you great thanks for that. Lord, there may be people here who have a wrong picture of God, thinking things like, God could never forgive me for what I've done. May we remember that your capacity to forgive knows no bounds. Reveal to us the truth of who you are, that you are not disappointed with us like a parent or a headmaster maybe. You are not angry with us. You love us so much that you sent Christ to step in and restore us to yourself. May that produce joy in our hearts, the fruit of the Spirit. May you make it real to us as never before, God. 
We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.